do you think really chocolatey chocolate milk comes from? A chocolate cow? This is Max Hedrum. Hi there. We have a report from the flight dynamics officer that the vehicle has exploded. Dr. Jones, again we see there is nothing you can possess which I cannot take away. Hi, Michaela. How are you, Don't lie to me, Magnum. You're playing some insipid game on Robin Master's $100,000 computer system. It seems to me that the made-up things are a good deal better than the real ones. Fun counter guy, thanks for stopping by. We're back in our favorite decade, and on this episode, we're sharing nostalgic stories, mostly about sports, but we also have one guest who will close out the podcast telling about his family's life and an eventual escape from 1980s communist Vietnam. But first, let's play ball. Because of my religious upbringing, I, I, I was not allowed to participate in organized sports outside of church activities. Uh, can I ask why? It was uh, their viewpoint was uh, you didn't want to associate with worldly people. Okay. Then, roughly around my freshman sophomore year, my dad never really went to the church that my mom, my mom was raised up in. So right around freshman, sophomore year, I'd ask Dad, hey, you know, I'd really love to start, you know, doing some play baseball, football. So he, he talked Mom into it to let me try out. It was on a Friday, and baseball tryouts were starting that Monday. And my buddy Brad Overton, he calls me up and says, hey, why don't you try out for baseball with me? I said, sure, why not? So I had no idea where my baseball glove was even at. I couldn't tell you the last time I'd even put it on or throw a baseball. But I thought, you know, hey, this would be really neat. Went into practice that, that Monday. The very first drill in, in the four corners of the gym, one side would have to, like, uh, throw it to the other corner. Then the other corner, would, they, they would catch it and then, like, uh, roll it on the ground to the next to the other corner to feel like a ground ball or something, you know. So I'm sitting there, and I'm it's my turn. I, I'm up next, and I, I've got my glove, and I'm all ready. And I was supposed to roll the ball to to the to the other corner like a like a ground ball. And so um, the ball comes to me, I catch it. Because I was so excited and fired up, instead of rolling the ball, I reared back and threw the ball as hard as I could. Well, I threw it so hard and so high that it went up into the rafters and got stuck in the batting cage net that was up in the rafters they would lower down for batting and so it got caught up in there and 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 everybody just there was no laughing no 
everybody was just looked at looking at me like, wow, they've never seen anything like that happen before. They're impressed. They, no, they weren't impressed at all, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't. Uh, the, the coaches, pre, I just kind of the coaches didn't even have a, have a look on their faces. It was just kind of like, wow, that has never happened before. <laughs> Uh, next up was we, we went outside and we were in the outfield and, and uh, they were hitting balls to the outfield and used to uh, you know catch catch a fly ball. So everybody else, you know, they, they were doing catch the balls or whatever and my turn came up. So I'm I'm in the right position, hit my glove, I'm I'm ready to rock and roll and yeah. here comes the hit and it, it, it's high and I'm sitting there and I'm sitting there, and I'm just standing there, and sitting there, and and uh, I didn't move at all. I, I I guess I thought that they were going to hit the ball directly to me, mm-hmm. but the ball was way over me. I didn't uh, try and judge it, or I, I I just stood there and I just watched it go over my head, <laughs> and so I ran and got the ball, and and then I, I was supposed to hit. After you caught the ball, you're supposed to throw it to the cutoff man. Well, I didn't do that. I, I threw the ball as hard as I could. It went. It actually went over over the cutoff man's head into the backstop. Coaches just kind of looked at me like, "Wow, this kid really has never played baseball before in his life." <laughs> then, then came the batting time. Okay. <clears throat> I've never taken a pitch from anybody. Here comes. It's my turn to bat. So I'm up there. I'm 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 just ready to I'm to crank it. Dogmatically, right? You're exactly right. The first pitch comes to me, and and, and I swing so hard I fell down. <laughs> and, and what's even worse than that is that I swung so soon the ball was maybe even hadn't even got halfway to the plate yet, <laughs> and, and I was taking a taking a cut like I was going to crank it out of there. <laughs> And uh, a few more times, they get, uh, pitches came my way. I, I, I was swinging and never even close, never even close to it. And then all I remember is Mr. Tuggle. He, yeah. he, he, he comes up to me and says, well, son, let's see how you are at bunting the ball. <laughs> and so I, I got down in the bunting position and... And he, he did you even know what that was? I had no idea. Did you think it was part like a cake or something? I had, oh, we're gonna eat cake now. <laughs> a bun cake. So uh, Mr. Togo realizes that I, I have no idea what I'm doing, uh-huh. and so he comes over and he, he's here. Let, let me show you how to bun. So uh-huh. he he's shown me how to hold the bat properly, and and uh, so he steps away and points at the the pitcher to start firing in. So yeah, I still can't bunt. So anyway, on the third day of of, of of tryouts, the end of end of the third day, they go, okay, you know, we're gonna have to let 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 some of you go. There's only so so much so much talent we can take. <laughs> <laughs> Did you in your head think you had a chance? I thought there might have been a, been been a small glimmer of, of hope, <laughs> but uh, in in reality, now not a not a chance. But so anyway, of course, I was the one, one of the names called to 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 the you know to the the coach's office. Uh, it was me and Brad and. A few other, a few other guys, and and uh, Mr. Little was actually the one that's going to deliver the bad news to us, and he he delivered the the, the news so eloquently and in a way that uh, 
uh, uh, you know, to really boost your self-esteem and to boost you up. And he said, fellas, you look like a bunch of chickens with your heads cut off. <laughs> oh. And, uh, yeah, that, that really stung. Hudler from second, Griffey from first, two men out, Mattingly takes ball one. So my senior year, I'd always loved baseball, and I played baseball ever since I was a kid. So my senior year, I, I really wasn't playing that well, you know. And I did, I, and I don't know what possessed me, but there's me and some of the other guys. I think one of them had already decided he was going to quit, and he turned in his uniform. And so I got the wild hair since I wasn't playing. That you know, I thought I'd go ahead and quit. And I think there was only one game left or two, so I went ahead and quit as well. And, uh, you know, I didn't consult with anybody, didn't talk to my parents or anything, you know. So I just thought, I thought I wasn't getting a fair shake. And the sad thing was, you know, I, the coach and I had a pretty decent relationship. You know, I'd even mow grass with him one time over the summer. And so for the longest time, I'd been angry about that just for years and years. Oh, well, flashback a little bit. So the assistant coach, he told me, he said, this is something, if you do this, he said, you're going to regret that for the rest of your life. And the funny thing was, you know, that was something, I mean, he was right. Because after I'd quit, you know, I just had this resentment about that coach, the head coach. And I thought, you know, I just can't, you know, I'd saw the guy. I mean, it'd been years later, I ran into him in the barber shop, And he was just completely uncomfortable. You know, maybe I saw he was in there. I think I may have even left. I don't even think I went in. Flash forward years and years later back to... I guess 2008 or maybe it was 2012. So when I ran for county council, and the funny thing is that coach came in, the head coach came in and picked up one of my signs out of the out of the political party's office, and he picked that up. And uh, you know, I was like, oh gosh, I, I never, I never in a million years would I have thought he would have picked that up. Or after he picked up that sign, I went outside and talked to him, and you know, I apologized to him. I said, you know, it's just a dumb. Can't can't believe it. And he said, you know, he's just a kid, you know, he's doing silly things. But it was, it's kind of like you came full circle. And, and, you know, and I will say that carrying around that anger towards somebody or that regret that you've had for years, it's terrible. I mean, you just don't, it's just something you never want to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just one of those things where I just, you know, for years and years, I, I carried that around. But then, you know, talking to him and then afterwards, he was actually, I was actually helping out with the, high school baseball team and he was helping with them so you know he even referenced how when I was playing for him how hard I'd always played and everything you know so it's kind of nice to come back full circle and kind of get that reconciliation because yeah. the guy had never he'd never been mad at me but I'd been mad and and you know I think I'd listened too much to maybe some of my parents thinking that you know I was getting the raw deal and mm-hmm. stuff instead of just looking at things you know, outside of being a dumb 17-year-old kid. But, yeah, yeah, it was nice to get that monkey off your back because, <laughs> you know, carrying around grudges and things for the rest of your life, it's a terrible thing to do. In track, one of my best friends is Rodney Williamson, and he was our pole vaulter. And I don't know why I kept pole vaulting because he kept hurting himself. He snapped a pole one time that impelled him in a butt cheek. Oh my goodness! One time I was 
I was done with my events and I was catching the pole whenever he hit pole vault, it falls back and you catch it. Well, he came down, he missed the pit totally and broke his tailbone. They had to like drive the ambulance out and get him off the mat. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but he did have the school record. He was a good pole vaulter. He went to state one year in pole vaulting. Another time, I think, uh, pressure from the pole bending it shot the cap off the end and it embedded in the heel on the other side of the football field <laughs> I, I always loved gym class which i guess most people hated it I always loved running. I loved playing all the sports. I loved doing all this stuff. I, We all had lockers. They all had padlocks. I started realizing that my gym clothes were being stolen almost, well, every time I would replace them. <laughs> Who would want them? I don't know. I think my name was even on the shirts. <laughs> but every day I would go to my locker, you know, and my mom had paid for replacements several times, but they were being stolen. My lock would never missing. So either there was a hole in my locker somewhere or someone knew my combination and they were just doing it to mess with me. My mom just said, well, I'm not buying any more gym clothes. So I just started sitting out. They wouldn't let me participate in gym class. So I would sit on the sidelines and watch gym class occur. So I set out of gym class, I think, two weeks. Uh, I got called to the principal's office. I got an F in gym. Dang. The principal wanted to know why I was pulling this stunt. <laughs> It didn't believe me that my gym clothes were being stolen. It does sound like an unlikely story. My parents never, mind you, never went to the school, never called the school, wow. never never went there and said, what is going on? Yeah. No resolve. Had he been a good principal, I think, he would have put some clothes in there and have you locked it up. And just to see, like, that would it really happen? The irony was the guy was friends with my grandmother. I don't know if I could have been any more connected. To, <laughs> like, I'm not an outcast. Yeah. I... But... Yeah, damned if people aren't going to assume I'm just out to ruin gym class for everybody. My second attempt at sports was football. I can remember... The first day of practice, everybody, you know, the coach gives everybody a pep talk, and then he says, okay, linebackers over here, quarterbacks over here, linemen you go over here. Everybody had, had peeled off and went to their stations, and I'm sitting there because I had no idea what I, what I was going to do. I'd, I'd never played before. I didn't know if I was going to be a running back or wide receiver or, or what. And did you know how to play? I didn't know how to play. I, I'd never <laughs> played before. All I can remember is thinking, hey, Wide receiver sounds like a pretty cool position. So I said, I'll go be a wide receiver. Now keep in mind, I've never ran a passing route or, or, or anything. And I remember Jimmy Williams, Coach Jimmy Williams, after the first, maybe second time I ran a passing route, he kind of pulls me to the side and he says, you've never played football before, have you? I said, no. Does it show, really? <laughs> <laughs> Am I that bad? <laughs> But the very first actual game we had, of course, I, I, I wasn't going to be a, be a wide receiver. I, I did. They let you be on the team, though. Yeah, I, I got to be. Well, they, they didn't kick anybody off the team, so I, so I made the team by default, I guess you could say. But uh, I was actually on the kickoff team. On the, on the kickoff team, you're assigned to a lane. You're supposed to stay in your lane. Just run straight down the field. Don't go outside of your lane. 
I was over on the left hand side, the very farthest left hand side, and the ball was kicked. It was kicked over towards the right right side. All I remember is running as hard as I can, running in front of other people to the ball because I thought, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm really going to impress them. So I'm running as fast as as hard as I can, and well, the receiving team caught the ball and they're building the wall, you know, and then the the guy that caught the ball is behind the wall. And, and for some reason, I thought that it was just going to be a piece of cake for me to just prance right right through that wall. All I remember was some guy hit me, hit me so un- unbelievably hard. All I could hear is people go, oh! <laughs> and I'm laying on my back, and I, and I, I literally have like snot bubbles <laughs> coming out of my nose. Luckily, the, the guy that almost killed me, mm-hmm. uh, he said, hey, uh, nice job, and helped me up. I, I couldn't hardly breathe. <laughs> I couldn't move, but yet he's, he, he's lifting me off the ground. <laughs> but now my the second year, my junior year uh, of, of playing football, I, I actually didn't make, I was on the JV starting team as a wide receiver. But usually the whole idea of a wide receiver is for the quarterback to throw to the wide receiver. Mm-hmm. But I, I was so terrible, and they didn't have anybody else that could be the wide, wide, wide receiver, I guess. And after about the second or third series of plays, the defensive back who was guarding me would realize that they're not going to throw the ball to this guy. <laughs> so he then started to almost become like a linebacker. I would be out there in no man's by myself. Right. I, I, I could have went to the concession stand and got some popcorn and come back. <laughs> they still would not have thrown the ball to me. I mean, I'm, I've got air, airplane flags and I'm doing signals. And, I mean, I, some, some of those moments I was in the end zone. I mean, wide open. I'm like, oh, here I am, guys. Here, I'm right here. I swear I'll catch it, throw it. But uh, needless to say, I never caught a pass. But although my senior year, I, I will have to say that I do have the Indiana high school highest tackling percentage. Really? Yeah, because what happened is that uh, on senior night, every, everybody got to play at least one series of downs. Or, so um, uh, they Jimmy Williams decides uh, it's, it's late in the fourth quarter. He, he decides to put me on the de- defensive line. Mm-hmm. All you know, 132 pounds of me. We're gonna I'll put him on the defensive line. I had no idea what I was doing. Never played defensive line. The offense hikes the ball, and I guess the 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 line, the offensive lineman on the on the other side of me looked at me and thought I, I was special. You know, they're putting this guy in as a oh, some yeah, charity or like handicap guy. Yeah, yeah and, and and so they they didn't even like block me, but I I went right through him and actually tackled the running back. Wow. Yeah, and so uh, I was like, ooh, ooh, you know, I had my first tackle. And then so the next play, uh, I got creamed. They laid me out. <laughs> and so, therefore, you know, the two plays that I actually played for varsity, I, you know, one for two out of tackle, so I have 50% uh, tackle <laughs> percentage. <laughs> so, uh, <Wow>. yay me. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Is your name on a board somewhere still? Probably not. Huh? <laughs> it's Gary here, and I'm Mr. Clean. They call me Hitman. Don't know what they mean. They throw it long and watch me run. I'm on my man, one-on-one. I can't remember exactly who all went, but a bunch of us skipped out on lunch one day, and we were all football players. 
we were at Gaddy's and we had already ate. We seen the football coaches all came. Mr. Roji, Mr. Amiano, Mr. Klein, all three of them showed up there to eat lunch. So we all hid in the bathroom while they paid, went through the, the Gaddy's buffet. We were all peeking out the door and then we snuck out and went back to school. Specialty. I gotta get ready, make everything right. Monday night football's coming on tonight. I was again a very small kid. I played basketball. No, I tried out for basketball in Kansas and didn't make it. And uh, in junior high school, I don't know how this happened, but I got convinced by one of the coaches to be the manager of the football team one year, which means I had a football jersey. To explain to folks how tiny you were. Yeah, well, you know, even now at 46 years old, I keep my weight around 150 pounds and I'm 5'6". Junior high school, I was probably... 75 pounds maybe and so me on the football team is pretty funny like if you look at my yearbook i'm in a football jersey which is fantastic it's probably eating you isn't yeah. it <laughs> and it was you know hung on me had a number and my i remember my coach really encouraging me the coach encouraging me and of course i'm on the football team with all these guys that are three times my size in some cases and you know the locker room stink and i'm going to games helping rap and my coach i remember the coach saying scott now listen if you stay with this you can get a scholarship. You can go to you know. You can go to these schools. You can, if, if you're if you stay with this managing thing on our football team, all these you know you can you can do this like you know. And really? I, yeah, I'm serious. He's like you know they they need guys that know how to rap and and help and do all this to manage the football team. Mm-hmm. And I soon found out that I did not want to do this, mm-hmm. but he was very encouraging to me. So that's as close as I got to any kind of real sports thing. How did the football players treat you? I think they treated me well. Yeah, they were all friendly. I was the kind of kid who got along with everybody mm-hmm. for the most part, whether they were jocks or preps or dorks or dweebs or, you know, whatever. I, I, I fell somewhere in that category, but I tried to get along with everybody. And I think everybody, because I treated everybody, I think, with respect. Mm-hmm. I think I talk about this in my book a little bit. Because I was different facial-wise and funny and small, I knew how easy it would be to be picked on. And I so I... I naturally saw people that were out of the norm, out of the mainstream, and tried to be friends to them. I think I still do that to this day. Did you have to shower with them? No, 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 no. No, no, no. Unfortunately, I get very competitive, and unfortunately, the competitiveness of me blinds me to my own faults. And my senior year of high school, very last soccer game, and, and uh, John Bertram was was my coach. And to this day, I still that man was had been so influential in my life. He was he was hard on me, yet you know, kind of in a way that I needed it because I was so pigheaded and not listening. During the game, I screamed at our uh, assistant coach something that I shouldn't have screamed at because he was trying to coach me, and Bertram yanked me out of the game and gave me a good talking to and calmed me down. Unfortunately, though, uh, it only lasted for a little while because when he put me back in the game a little while later, I... um, got uh, a called for a foul and I went off on the referee and literally took my shirt off, tried to hand it to him and saying, do you want anything else? And he red carded me for that. <laughs> I really don't know what I was thinking. And you know, to, to this day, I'm still shocked that I never for getting kicked out of a high school sporting event. I never got, 
talking to by the principal. And then this also leads me down to it. That was in the fall of uh, my high school year. And then in the spring, golly, I just didn't realize in the spring, I I got kicked out of a baseball game too. I remember my coach told me that uh, for me to get back on the team, I had long hair then. And that's how I cut my hair. He said, for me to get back on the team, I had to cut my hair. Um, And I was kind of against it, but I also felt like I didn't want to be kicked off a baseball team for just being stupid and hot-headed. So that was uh, one of the uh, reasons I cut my long hair that I had mentioned earlier. In the summer when we had two-day football practices, and I was at Eric Wildman's house, and I was being a butthole to him. I don't know why, but I wasn't going to give him a ride to the football to the football field. And he lived on First Street just down the road. I went to leave, and he jumped on the back of my car, and he rode on the back of my car until we got into the parking lot for the uh, where the, for like the swimming pool parking lot. And I zigzagged back and forth, and I didn't intend to. I thought, now think you know, in hindsight, there's nothing really to hold on back there, but I didn't really think it would happen. But I rolled him off the back of the car, and he tumbled across the parking lot <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing because i had to uh go into the coach's office right before football practice and be like uh mr roji i gotta take eric to the hospital because he's kind of beat up he fell in the parking lot now <laughs> <laughs> show me wax on wax off wax on wax off wax on wax on hat wax off concentrate so in the basement of our church, once a week, there would be karate lessons, and they were free as long as you went to church. My uncle started doing karate, and it was like quite a few, there might have been 20, 25 people down there, uh, I think it was on Wednesdays, and so I went down for a couple, I'm not a coordinated person, uh, I don't dance. You don't get <clears throat> jiggy with it? I mean, my hands, okay. I, I strum, okay. <laughs> a nod, a toe tapping maybe. <laughs> Either you have it or you don't. So I went to maybe a month's worth of karate lessons, and it wasn't very individualized. It was learn these forms, bring it up to the leader, do your forms, you get the first belt, memorize the next set of forms. It was a very self-starting kind of thing for a group exercise. I wasn't really feeling it, didn't really enjoy it. Then I look over and realize your dad was doing it, and you were there quite a bit. And, but you weren't in, in participating. No. So while I'm sitting over there watching the forms, I realize you you just have a poster board out. You would do these, what I call, cross-sections. Part of it above ground, part of it below ground. But I, I really latched onto that. I thought it was hilarious. Because you had a cross-section of a piece of earth... And above ground, you had a farm, a house, a neighborhood, and then you had like silos. And then going down from the silos, you, you had stairs and elevator going to the, the deep earth. And then down there, there were huge this, caverns. This was a drawing? You had huge caverns uh, with missiles, and <laughs> stacks of ammunition, people down there talking to people, groups. <laughs> like, and it was a whole, like, this is a cross section of part of. I don't know where. And, and Boonville, I was, probably. <laughs> and I just, I, I got such a kick out of that. And, and all I wanted to do was being creative. Uh-huh. And didn't know how I wanted to be creative, but that was that was certainly like a, a, a beacon there. This looks fun. And of course, 
that was frowned on. Like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> like I see you do karate lessons and you're just drawing. And what is this drawing? <laughs> the whole thing was to get church attendance up. Yeah, it's a good strategy. But then I started realizing that the favorites, the people who are doing really well, mm-hmm. they were never at church. <laughs> like, they just... They're just like, he couldn't afford to not have them anymore. He'd spend all this time helping them go to all these tournaments mm-hmm. and do all this stuff. And everybody wanted to be Ralph Macchio. And that place smelled like dirty feet. Billy Bob Brubeck, University of Texas, right guard. <laughs> Number 72. Ah, uh, 27. In the summer between our junior and senior year, my cousin trans- was transferring from Tecumseh to Boonville. And uh, Devin's really big. He's almost 6'4", and I think at the time was 225, really big, broad-shouldered, big-chested, big, muscular guy. Devin, when he wants to do something, he just wants to do something no matter when or what time it is. We're driving around town, and he said, I want to talk to you know Coach Roji. And I'm like, you know where he lives? And I'm like, yeah. And he, I said, well, we can go over there tomorrow. And he goes, no, I want to go right now. It's like 1030 at night. I'm like, we probably shouldn't do that. He, he's like, I'm, I'm like, he's got a little baby at the time. And I'm like, it's probably not a good time. But he wanted to go, so we went. So I knock on, I ring the doorbell, and we get to his house. And he opens the door, and he sees just me. And he's like, Brandon, what do you want? And he's like, T-shirt and underwear. And you could tell, like, mm. I think he just got out of bed. <laughs> or he was already in bed. So I'm like, my cousin's transferred to come see. He wants to meet you really bad. So we thought we'd stop by, and he's like, can this wait? And I'm like, well, he's standing right here, and he opens the door a little further and sees Devin and goes, oh, boys, come on in. So he invites us in the living room. His wife gets up. She's like in a nightgown. He's like, honey, go make these boys a soft drink. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so we sit there and talk for a little while about mm-hmm. football. But và để mở đầu chương trình, Tuyết Nhung xin giới thiệu cùng quý vị nữ ca sĩ Kiều Nga với nhạc phẩm Give Me Your Love Tonight. Now we're about to hear a friend of mine's account of growing up in Vietnam and also his family's eventual escape. But before he gets into that, I thought I'd go into history professor mode and talk a little bit about the history of Vietnam up to the 1980s. Historically, Vietnam was ruled by various dynastic dictatorships, many of them puppet kings placed on the throne by neighboring China. In the 1500s, Portugal began to establish trade, followed by the French in the 1600s. Vietnamese xenophobia and mistreatment of French Catholics in the 1800s triggered the French Navy to begin intervening in the nation's affairs. By 1884, Vietnam fell under full French control. Soon after this, a third of Vietnamese Christians were massacred by guerrillas dedicated to royalism, and they themselves were defeated in 1890. In 1940, Japan conquered Vietnam. In 1941, a nationalist communist organization called the Viet Minh was formed and headed by Ho Chi Minh. It sought an independent Vietnam, free from Japan and France. In 1945, after the defeat of the Japanese, the Allies decided Vietnam was still a French colony. In 1954, the nation was divided temporarily into North and South Vietnam. North became communist under Ho Chi Minh, and the South became a constitutional monarchy under No Di Diem. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. The North was backed by the Soviet Union, China, Khmer Rouge, and Sweden, while the South 
was supported by France, the United States, Laos, Taiwan, and Thailand. It was during the 1950s that Vietnam became almost the sole project of the United States, starting with President Eisenhower, and was a conundrum for every president, Democrat or Republican, up until President Gerald Ford in the 1970s. In 1975, the United States finally pulls out of Vietnam, and over the next year, over 30,000 Vietnamese were executed by the Viet Cong Communist. Thousands more are imprisoned and tortured. I was born in Nha Trang, Vietnam. I was born in 1982. My family history, we lived in southern Vietnam. The city was Nha Trang. My grandmother was from the north. Unsure which part of the north, but that's just how we would call it, from the north or from the south, because uh, in Vietnamese, the word north is Bắc, mm -hmm. and we would just call them from Bắc, and that's it from the north. So my grandmother moved to the south, and I'm not sure where my grandfather is from, but he died when I was very young. And my father, who is from Hue, uh, met my mother, and we started a family in Yejang. What is your city or town? Is it a town or a village? or? It's pretty modernized. I, I wouldn't say as big as Ho Chi Minh City, but it's, it's close to that. During the Vietnam War, how did that affect your mom and dad and maybe your grandparents? Do you know? I've only known what they tell me uh, because when I, had, when I was born, all that was past. Right. We were still seeing the repercussions of it, but not, I was not there for any of it. Um, my father was in the war. He fought for the South. Mm -hmm. And where he was in Hue, I think that's pretty far up north. He could have fought from the north if he wanted to. It affected us in a big way. We we are here in America now because of the war. For my father, was, after the war, he got jailed. And then after he was out of jail, he decided that he didn't want to have his family raised in this kind of a country. So we started the whole journey to America, which is him coming over here first, my mother and I staying back there. Oh, he was jailed. From what I know, he was uh, pretty high up in the ranks where he was training American troops to when they were coming over on the tactics or the land or whatever it is. But he, he was high, higher up in the rank. And when when the, the war ended, the I'm sure his name was in all the books and they knew who he was. And because he was on the other side, not for any particular reason, but because of that alone. He had been a traitor to the country in the eyes of the communist. Yes. So what about your dad's experience in jail? Like, How long was he there? Did he talk about what happened there, how he was treated? He was there for five years, and when he got out a couple of years later, mom and him had me. I remember a story. I hear it's horrific. I hear it from my mom. And I hear it from him from time to time. And the, how horrible it is, is within the stories that they would tell. And one story in particular, so my father, he was in prison and he was abused in the way that in jail, my father, on one of the days of um, working, they, they, had, they had all the inmates work. It would be jobs no one wanted to do. And that job, the job that particular day was digging up graves. 
And my father was the only one who didn't dig it up, didn't dig up his spot. And so they beat him bad. And not only did they beat him bad, they took a, a big log and just kept on shoving it into his groin. Oh my goodness. And that is my dad who would not do something he felt was wrong and he would stood that. And that's my, that's my dad. How long did you live in Vietnam before you all left? There's six of us. There's my mom and my dad and four, four of us kids. And they left in 84 when I was two. Huh. They, meeting everyone except mom and I, for I was too young. Because the method of leaving was very dangerous and they did not want to bring a baby along. The first group left by, back in, the, back in those days in 84, the way that you would go out of Vietnam is you would have to have gold and money. And when you, and then you would take it to somewhere out in the, um, in the coast to some fishermen that would do these kinds of things, smuggle people out of the country. And you would pay these men large sums of money in gold. And they would then take however many that was scheduled, one, two, three people, however many, onto a little raft of a boat where there was a motor where you would pedal also by hand. And that little boat would meet a bigger boat out somewhere past the communist patrol, past the borders of Vietnam into the waters of the Philippines. And from there, the Filipinos would help us come to America. So my father, he successfully made it because not everyone makes it. My father got on a boat with my three siblings who were little, but not as little as I. They were seven years older than I because my father had the kids before he went to the war, before he got jailed. So once they got to the Philippines and got to the United States, it wasn't until 1990, so about seven, eight years. Oh, wow. I do want to tell about the TV broadcast. The TV broadcast is very interesting in Vietnam in that in those days, the, in the evening time, you would have, before supper, there were these big speakers that would play songs, communist songs. And then somebody would come up and speak about, to speak about the heroism of somebody, somebody. It would be, I think you call it propaganda. Sure. And that's what uh, you, we would hear in the evening time, a loudspeaker. And they would have it strategically placed around the market and around towns so that people would hear it. It was just a normal thing for us. Then after that, every night we would have the news, one cartoon show, and one movie every night. And it was from 7 to 10, and that's the entertainment that the whole country got all at once. Mm-hmm. The same movie, everybody watched the same cartoon episode. The cartoon was always Warner Brothers. It was always Tom and Jerry episode, Popeyes. if we would ever see my dad again and as a kid i i know of the oppression of communism i see them walking around in their uniforms their their dark green uniform and their ak-47s which they still do today they also harassed us we had a full restaurant as i understood they just came and just took 
tax money whenever they wanted, demanded things, and you had to get on their good side somehow. I don't know if we paid them off, but we could have. Back then, it wasn't as easy as calling, picking up your your iPhone, obviously, to call across to another uh, country. It took many years, actually, for us to be able to talk to that. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't just a year or two. It was like midway somewhere or farther than midway, closer to when we were leaving. We granted an opportunity to speak to him on the telephone. We got all dressed up, and when we went inside this big building to room after room after room and. And then finally, there was a telephone, and we could barely hear each other, but we heard that we heard his voice, and everyone was crying. And dad is like, "Mom is like, that's your dad, that's your dad." I do have that memory of uh, trying to talk to him because before that, it was just letters. So while my father was over here waiting to get money together and do all the paperwork for us to come over here, it took years, like uh, seven, eight years. It took in within that time. My mother and I tried to go over here, the method that he did. It never did because we always spotted communist patrol boats, and one time our boat even flipped over. So we were on these little boats out, pitch dark waters, as far as the eye can see, being quiet. The boat flipped over. I lost conscience, and luckily my uncle found me. I almost died that night. Wow! I must have been six. Six years old, maybe seven around that time. It was a couple of years before I came over here. So we did try. We didn't want to wait. That's how much we wanted to be back with our family. What's the, your memories of coming to America? What was the first thing that stuck out to you? Escalators. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, escalators. And I remember falling before I even got on it. I don't know how it was, but I was just staring at it. And as I was walking, I, I kind of fell over a little bit. And I won't forget that. It was just so wild to me to see an escalator. Yeah. And that same night, so everything I saw was new. Driving, everything was clean. I noticed things were clean because in Vietnam, back in the uh, mid-80s, it was dirty on the streets. I don't think it is much now. Last I came back, it wasn't as. But I remember everything being clean and spacious. Everything was so spacious. And, and, and that night, I remember playing Super Nintendo, and I remember eating Doritos. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to America. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but the main thing about in Vietnam is that we don't live far apart from each other. The distance is not far apart from each other. We either a lot of people live in a big household with multiple like floors, and each family would take a floor. Mm-hmm. When I moved to the United States, the first thing I noticed is that Uncle's house is really far. Right, and that's just the the, the way that you, you live is just different. That's uh, so in Vietnam, everything was in walking distance, or everybody, I should say. Yeah, everything and everybody. And, and, and as a kid, uh, growing up like that, it was very festive all the time. It was like that all the time. Night, 
When uh, you hear people talking, especially in the States, about Vietnam and the Vietnam War and all that, how much of it do you hear do you feel is inaccurate to your memory? I don't feel that it's inaccurate. I just feel it leaves out what it was like. When you're born and you're under the suppression of communism, where you know what to do and what not to do as far as to keep your mouth shut, to not look at them and things like that, you get so used to that 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 becomes the norm. You never hear of that, that fear of, of the Vietnamese people, even though it feels like there was more people that was not communist, that was just the good people, just work, workers, and we all had to keep quiet. And there was just a few people walking around carrying guns that was telling us what to do, and we had to listen to them. If you're still in an 80s mood, you might give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile episode 217 a listen, where we share tales of epic parties, bullies, and fights. There's also episode 223, which is a Songs from a Roller Rink Dumpster episode, where we chat about musical artists that never did get the due that we think they deserved. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.